I thank God for all who have led us so beautifully in worship today on this highest and holiest day for our Christian faith. We are beginning a new sermon series today called Ramifications of Resurrection. We're going to be focusing on 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Today I want to draw your attention to 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 8. I will read from the New Revised Standard Version. And the title of the sermon is Standing in the Gospel. Now I should remind you, brothers and sisters, of the good news that I proclaimed to you, which you in turn received, in which also you stand, through which also you are being saved, if you hold firmly to the message that I proclaimed to you, unless you have come to believe in vain. For I handed on to you as of first importance what I in turn had received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers and sisters at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all as to someone untimely born. He appeared also to me. Let us pray. Lord God, in this preaching moment, I simply ask that you would help me to speak your word. Help them to hear your word. And Lord, help us all to do your word. I pray in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen. One night, 11 years ago, I discovered just how powerfully narrative shapes existence. We were far from home, and my two-year-old daughter, Nora, was battling a cruel virus. My wife, Dana, was also very sick and quite depleted from spending days taking care of Nora. I was an exhausted dad, all out of strength, all out of answers, lying flat on my back in the middle of the floor of a very dark room. As Nora slept in her pack and play and Dana slumbered on the bed, my five-year-old daughter Maggie and I were just trying to wait out the darkness searching for a way to comfort Maggie amid our distress and dismay, I resorted to telling stories. They were true stories of good times we had enjoyed as a family, or good times I had enjoyed while growing up. I had to whisper so as not to awaken anybody, and I whispered story after story after story. Maggie listened and giggled quietly here and there. She asked follow-up questions and I responded and carried on. As these joyful narratives were released into the dark room, 
flickers of hope began to appear, like fireflies at nightfall. In retrospect, I suppose I was seeking to defy the bleakness of our situation by locating it within a bigger and brighter storyline. The more I whispered those cheerful stories, the more our present gloom was subsumed into a larger plot with more positive possibilities awaiting us in the future. We made it through the night indeed, heartened by the hope of the larger story we found ourselves in. The Corinthians were likewise distressed and dismayed when the Apostle Paul penned his first epistle to them. Their set of circumstances comprised a smorgasbord of predicaments, including divisions in the community, immorality in conduct, unfaithfulness in worship, disbelief in resurrection, quarrels, pride, lawsuits, factions, and death. Amid all this, Paul said, I should remind you of the good news. And he told them a story. He told them a story from the past that shaped their present, and signaled their future. He told them a narrative that located their current troubles within a bigger and brighter plot line. Although Paul is sometimes labeled a systematic theologian or a teacher of doctrine, foundationally, he was a storyteller. The story Paul told represented the centripetal conviction around which all his other beliefs orbited. This is the only instance in Paul's letters when he describes something as being of first importance. This is a singular passage where he succinctly summarizes the gospel or good news that had been passed on to him and that he in turn passed on to others. Among the 76 occurrences of the term gospel in the New Testament, this is a unique moment in which Paul spells out the gospel's original content. If the Bible had italics, this text would be italicized. If the Bible were a target, this text would be the bullseye. If the Bible were a house, this text would be the foundation. It presents the story that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. Notice the narrative character of the message Paul chronicles. Christ died, Christ was buried, and Christ was raised. The gospel is not a principle or a precept. It is a plot. The gospel is not a guideline. It is a storyline. Since the gospel is in essence a narrative, faith is not so much about affirming a list of beliefs as it is about living in a certain story. 
Faith is inhabiting a distinctive plot line. Faith is indwelling a sacred saga. Indeed, Paul says the Corinthians received the gospel in which they stand. He does not say they stand on the gospel. He says they stand in it. He does not say they stand for the gospel. He says they stand in it. He does not say they stand by the gospel. He says they stand in it. Whether consciously or subconsciously, we all stand in some stream of narrative that molds the meaning of our existence. In the modern world, there is a narrative that optimizing physical appearance and maximizing sensual experience is ultimate. There is a narrative that amassing excess resources and collecting abundant material things is ultimate. There is a narrative that obtaining influence and exercising power over others is ultimate. There is a narrative that attending prestigious schools and attaining professional success is ultimate. There is a narrative that becoming self-reliant and finding our own truth is ultimate. There is a narrative that sport is ultimate. There is a narrative that entertainment is ultimate. There is a narrative that technology is ultimate. There is a narrative that personal value is determined by social status. There is a narrative that we are what we achieve. There is a narrative that human differences create inevitable inequities and irreconcilable divisions, and so any hope for justice and peace is mere fantasy. There is a narrative that God is a figment of the imagination, that human rulers are the highest authorities, and that the material world exhausts reality. Many are the misguided narratives that seek to entrap us within the confines of their plot lines. But the gospel offers a divine counter-narrative, which undercuts and overpowers the other storylines, clamoring for our participation. The gospel is the bigger and brighter story that Jesus Christ died for our sins and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day. That Jesus died is a fact, by the way. We can prove as much without any reference to the Bible. Around the year 94 CE, the Jewish historian Josephus wrote that Jesus was condemned to the cross by Pontius Pilate. Around the year 115 CE, the Roman historian Tacitus, who was harsh on Christians, wrote, Their name comes from Christ, who during the reign of Tiberius had been executed by the procurator Pontius Pilate. These non-biblical ancient sources confirm the New Testament reports that Jesus was executed under a Roman official named Pontius Pilate. To deny this would be to deny historical fact. Paul adds that Christ died for our 
sins. The conviction is that Christ's death on the cross was an atoning sacrifice for the sins of all humanity. As Paul writes in Romans 5, God demonstrates God's love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We have all sinned in thought, word, and deed, by what we have done and by what we have left undone. No one is without sin. And sin alienates us from God and from one another. In the Old Testament, atonement for sin was accomplished by way of sacrifice. God's people sacrificed bulls and goats, rams, and birds, heifers, and grain to have their sins atoned. But Christ is the final sacrifice, the ultimate sacrifice, who gave himself up on the cross in divine love for us. His death reconciles us to God and to one another, putting us at peace. After Christ died for our sins, he was buried. This may seem a rather pedestrian observation, but the burial of Christ confirms that he was truly dead, fully dead, utterly and totally dead. He was so dead that if Miracle Max from the Princess Bride had been at Christ's tomb, he would not have diagnosed him as mostly dead, but as all dead. Christ's body lay lifeless from Friday evening through Sunday morning. But then he was raised on the third day. In the marvelous and mysterious power of God, Christ arose from the grip of the grave and broke loose from the clutches of death. He was not merely resuscitated, he was resurrected. He did not get his old life back, he got a whole new life. He did not have the same old body, he had a new resurrected body. He was not part of the old creation, he was part of God's new creation. By his death, Christ saves us from sin, reconciling us to God and to one another. And by his resurrection, Christ saves us from the grave, giving us abundant and everlasting life. When on Easter morning, Christ rubbed his eyes and stretched his arms and got to his feet and brushed himself off, he stood victorious over the grave. He stood triumphant over the power of death. According to Paul, this is not just a story we stand on, though it is foundational. This is not just a story we stand for, though it is something we believe. This is not just a story we stand by, Though it is something we cling to, this is a story we stand in. 
this gospel, this good news, this story of God's great love for the world, this story of atonement for human sin, this story of reconciliation with God and reconciliation with other people, this story of victory over the power of death, this story of abundant and everlasting life is a story that we stand in. It reminds me of a trip my family took to Disney World several years ago when my daughters were young. We were having a big time at the Magic Kingdom, enjoying several rides and attending various shows. We went to the Country Bear Jamboree and watched the bears sing. We went to the Enchanted Tiki Hut and saw the birds do their thing. But the show that stood out most to me was called Enchanted Tales with Belle. Now as a girl dad, I was already plenty acquainted with all the Disney princesses. From Ariel to Sleeping Beauty, from Cinderella to Pocahontas, from Tiana to Jasmine, so I knew all about Belle. I figured we might be viewing an abbreviated version of Beauty and the Beast, performed by actors or animatronics, but we began by stepping into Belle and Maurice's quaint country cottage. Then we toured Maurice's workshop. Next, we watched the story of how Belle first met the beast, and before long, we found ourselves inside the beast's castle. At that point, Belle began drafting people from the audience to play various roles in the unfolding story. <laughs> Before I knew it, she had appointed me and another dad to play the role of guard. So I went up front and put on the attire that they provided, and I proceeded to stand watch. My daughters loved that I had become part of the drama. I was no longer observing from the outside, Spectator had become participant. Viewer had become actor. As I stood with the proud posture of a guard in Beast's castle, I stood in the story. Paul is reminding Christians that we are not spectators of the gospel drama, but participants in it. We are not viewers in the audience, but actors on the stage. We are not standing outside the gospel story as external observers. We are standing inside the gospel as characters enveloped in its unfolding plot line. However, the gospel is no fairy tale. It is rather a story rooted in history and ratified by eyewitness testimony. Paul recounts how the resurrected Christ appeared to Peter, to James, to the Twelve, to Paul himself, and to over 500 other people, most of whom were still alive when 1 Corinthians was written, although some had died. Paul's reference to hundreds of available eyewitnesses 
invites the Corinthians to go and check the veracity of the gospel with any number of individuals who could personally confirm their own encounter with the risen Savior. Paul wasn't just telling a story. He was telling a story he knew to be true. Indeed, it seems Paul wanted people to investigate the gospel carefully so that they could find it reliable and so they could accept it. We often think of the gospel as a way for Christ to come into our story. And it is. Paul says elsewhere, Christ lives in me. So there is a sense in which Christ comes into our story. But it's even more the case that we come into his story. It's even more the case that we enter his narrative. It's even more the case that we step into his sacred saga. To take the leap of Christian faith is to jump into the gospel story like a child jumping into a gentle river and to be carried along by its winding flow. The gospel is the reality that carves the contours of our existence. It's not so much that the gospel story is alive in us, but that we are alive in the gospel story. Baptism dramatizes our immersion in Christ's narrative. As we are lowered into the water, we die with Christ. As we are under the water, we are buried with Christ. And as we are raised from the water, we are raised with Christ to the resurrected life. We don't get our old life back. We're raised to a whole new life. We're no longer part of the old creation. We are part of God's new creation. We're no longer captive to death's intimidation because we have the power of everlasting life. In the waters of baptism, we don't just find ourselves standing on the gospel or standing for the gospel or standing by the gospel. We find ourselves standing in the gospel, soaked with grace, drenched with divine love, dripping with new life and primed to move forward in the way of love, joy, and peace, the way of justice, righteousness, and forgiveness, the way of reconciliation with God and reconciliation with people, and the way of unrelenting hope because we see our whole life and the entirety of history as well as the totality of creation all fully engulfed in the story of the good news of Jesus Christ. Narrative shapes existence. Stories are how we make sense of life. We all operate within some plot line that molds the meaning of our existence. Amid the many misplaced narratives that seek to allure us into their confines, and amid the sad and despairing narratives, we sometimes tell ourselves There is a story that can sustain us with good news. 
There is a story that can hold us in God's truth. So if you find yourself surrounded by a smorgasbord of predicaments, let me tell you a story. If you find yourself burdened by distress or dismay, let me tell you a story. If you find yourself just trying to wait out the darkness, let me tell you a story. If you find yourself all out of strength and all out of answers, let me tell you a story. Let me tell you a story with a bigger and brighter plot line. Let me tell you a story that releases flickers of hope like fireflies at nightfall. Let me tell you a story that shapes our present and signals our future. Let me tell you a story rooted in history yet requiring faith. Let me tell you a story that you can receive and a story that you can believe. Let me tell you a story that encapsulates within itself the grand arc of all creation. Let me tell you a story of divine love. Let me tell you a story of human reconciliation. Let me tell you a story that can only be described as good news. God loves us so very much that Christ died on the cross for our sins and that he was buried in a tomb, and that he arose from the grave on the third day. Christ is alive. Hope is indestructible. Resurrection is destiny. This is the story we stand on. This is the story we stand for. This is the story we stand by. But most of all, this is the story we stand in. Stand in it. Stand in it today, church. Stand in it by faith and you will find that you are being saved. Amen. If you have never